Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 110. Today's big Bible question is from Psalms 27. How can we not be afraid? So happy Friday, everybody. I'm getting started on the pod a little late tonight, so I got to cut out all the normal banter and all the funny jokes you normally hear in this space. Uh, That was actually my funny joke for the day, as I know my other jokes aren't really all that funny. Our Bible readings today are Leviticus 21, Psalms 26 and 27, Ecclesiastes 4, and 1 Timothy 6. Our Bible focus question comes from Psalms 27, and in this passage, David discusses how he will not give in to fear because God is his stronghold. As we talked about before, I suspect fear around the world is at its highest level in my lifetime, so our big Bible question is all about not being afraid in the midst of a fearful time. And let me caution you up front so that I'm not the spiritual equivalent of a used car salesman. I do believe that the Bible gives us multiple ways to overcome fear, but because we're human, there is no permanent cure for fear in the sense that, you know, you sort of take it once and poof, you're cured from fear forever. In the same way that people need daily food to live on, Christians need daily bread from God to live on. Part of that provision is the Word of God to help us overcome sin, to resist temptation, and to walk in faith rather than fear. And here's my experience and testimony. I have not had a life that has been characterized by fearfulness the whole time. But on the other hand, I have had many extended times in my life, or at least several, where fear and anxiety have taken hold and seemed to envelop me in some sort of spiritual wrestling match where I was pinned to the mat far more often than I overcame. In those times of trial, fear, and anxiety, I've been humbled, and my courage has often just sort of trickled away like water out of a leaky bucket. My only hope in those times, the only antidote I found to fear and anxiety when I was going through it, was a constant and persistent clinging to the Word of God and prayer. There's really no other substitute. Seeking God and immersing myself in his word has always overcome fear in my life. But, you know, to be very frank, it usually comes back. And one serving of God's word and abiding in him is not adequate medicine to eradicate the virus of fear from my soul. The reason for this is not a fault in the medicine of God's word and abiding through prayer, but the reason is a fault and weakness in my own soul Plus the divine purpose and wisdom of our creator. God didn't create humans and give him the ability to overcome every obstacle by our own power. God created man to be incapable of overcoming apart from abiding in his creator. And honestly, the greater the battle that comes against us, the greater the abiding in God and his word needs to be. So I say this to you who are battling anxiety, depression, weariness, fear, sorrow, and hopelessness right now. In Christ, you face a winnable battle. And here is your promise to rest on, Galatians 6, 9. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. So cling to the cross, believe the gospel, and read it in the word every day. Remind yourself frequently that Jesus died to pay the price for your sins, and that because he lives, you will live too. Consume the word. When I say consume, I mean read it. And the more great the battle you're going through, the more the consumption of the Word of God needs to be. Pray constantly. Trust God. When your eyes stray away from Him, and they probably will, and fall on something that makes you fear, 
Tear your eyes away from that thing and return your eyes and fix them on Jesus. Looking to him will enable you to overcome even when you are weary and faint-hearted, so says Hebrews 12, 1-3. So, in a spiritual war with fear, or something like fear, anxiety, or what have you, whether it's constant in your life or only occasional, how do we overcome? Well, step one is making sure the anchor of our life, our faith and trust, is in Jesus. I'm not merely being spiritual here, like the kind of spiritual that just sort of throws out a platitude and, and says, well, it says it as if that will make it uh, all better. I'm, I'm being quite sober-minded here and saying, make sure the trust and faith in your life is Jesus. Ask yourself when you're afraid what you're hoping for. Maybe you're afraid of the coronavirus, and what is your deepest hope in the midst of it? Is it that science will discover a cure, that politicians will make the right decisions, that you'll be protected by your excessive prudence and hygiene practices? All those things are good, but none of them are our anchor. Our anchor is Jesus, and really step one in overcoming fear is looking to Jesus. Some have already been doing that, but even if you haven't already been doing that and looking to Jesus first and foremost, there's still time now in the midst of this to hold fast to the anchor of Jesus. So let's go read Psalms 26 and 27, and then we're going to come back and hear from Tim Keller on Psalm 27. Psalms 26, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Vindicate me, Lord, because I have lived with integrity and entrusted in the Lord without wavering. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and mind, for your faithful love guides me, and I live by your truth. I do not sit with the worthless or associate with hypocrites. I hate a crowd of evildoers, and I do not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocent and go around your altar, Lord, raising my voice in thanksgiving and telling about your wondrous works. Lord, I love the house where you dwell, the place where your glory resides. Do not destroy me along with sinners or my life along with men of bloodshed in whose hands are evil schemes and whose right hands are filled with bribes. But I live with integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. I will bless the Lord in the assemblies. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers come against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, I was still confident. I've asked one thing from the Lord. It's what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking Him in His temple. For He will conceal me in His shelter. In the day of adversity, he will hide me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock, then my head will be high above my enemies around me. I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Lord, hear my voice when I call. Be gracious to me and answer me. My heart says this about you. Seek his face. Lord, I will seek your face. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn away your servant in anger. You have been my helper. Do not leave me or abandon me, God of my salvation. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. Because of my adversaries, show me your way, Lord, and lead me on a level path. Do not give me over to the will of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing violence. I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. 
So I love Tim Keller's message on Psalms 27. So I want to briefly tag him in here to talk about how the Lord is our stronghold and how we overcome fear by looking to him and how the way God carries us through trials is not necessarily to make the trials leave, but to uphold them in the midst of it. Keller says, somebody might ask, what part of David's life would this psalm have been a part of? When was this? When did it happen? And the answer is, it could have been any time because David is continually in trouble. If you read his life, he's always struggling. He's always wrestling. When he's a young man before he becomes king, what is he doing? He's out in the wilderness running for his life. As soon as he becomes king, when he's a young king, where do we see him? When he becomes king, his enemies come in and they decide they're going to attack him before he gets established. The next thing you know, he has to flee the capital and he's out in the wilderness running again for his life. Then he's an old man. It's different now. He's an old king. What do we see? We see his son Absalom doing a coup d'etat. There is David out in the wilderness again, running for his life. I mean, says Keller, he's just like us. He's always in trouble. He's always struggling. It's so amazingly realistic. Now, the word here doesn't say, he will keep me safe from the day of trouble. It doesn't say that. It says, he will keep me safe in the day of trouble. The Bible assumes there's trouble. Here it says, God will keep me safe when my, so when my enemies are all around me, when the trouble is all around me in the day of trouble, not from the day of trouble, in the midst of my enemies. Even Psalms 23 says that. He prepares a table before me. Where? Not after he's made those stupid enemies run off because he's whacked them and they're on the run. No, he prepares a table for us in the presence of my enemies. Have you ever thought about that, says Keller? There's no promise in Psalm 23 that he will take those enemies and make them run away. The promise is he will prepare a table for you in the presence of the enemies. He doesn't promise the absence of enemies. Even if you go to the New Testament, Romans 8, in Romans 8, 28, it says, all things work together for good for them that love God. And you say, well, that means nothing really bad can happen to me. You see, Romans 8, 29, immediately after Romans 8, 28 says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. What that means is, here's the promise. Nothing will come into your life but that which realizes the greatness and the nearness and the likeness of Jesus Christ in your life. It doesn't say nothing will come into your life that's really bad. It says nothing will come into your life that except that which will realize and bring about the greatness, the likeness, and the closeness of Jesus Christ. The reason why we shouldn't be surprised, why we shouldn't say what because when we go through trials is because there was a person who lived on earth who was very, very, very great and who loved God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind and who was very used by God and brought God brought things into his life that were really, really, really bad. Think about it. Jesus never had friends who fully understood him. He never got married and had children. He was beaten. He was tortured. He was destroyed. He was killed. He was rejected. Those are really, really bad things, says Keller. That was the end of his life. Jesus says a servant is not above his master. Safety doesn't mean safety from trouble. It means safety in trouble. It means that this is the promise. In the midst of your trouble, all the important parts of your life will be utterly safe. All the greatest joys, all the important things, all the things you really care about, all of your highest interests, all of the things that are the most valuable to you will be absolutely safe. Nothing can be touched in any of the vicissitudes of life but those things which are secondary, 
those things which are not of the essence of your joy or who you are. That's the promise. If that's the promise, what that means is it still comes back to the same thing. It means there is a condition you can be in so you can move out into the world trusting God and being fearless, absolutely fearless, fearless, total courage, not afraid of what happens, not afraid of what's about to happen, not afraid if an army, quote, if an army comes and besieges me, I will not fear. See, says Keller, that's the promise. The promise is you can live in that condition. Most of us think when we read that, ah, the promise, therefore, is if I trust God, I really won't have to trust, to suffer. That's not it. If I trust God, I will become a great heart. My heart will be strong. I will be afraid of nothing. My head will be exalted above my enemies who are surrounding me. That's what it promises. Why does this work? I'll tell you why. God does not promise that you will not suffer, but he does promise one thing. There's only one thing he will never take from you. He will never take himself from you. He will never turn his back on you. He will never say, Ah, you finally sinned one time too many. How many times have you done that? That's it. How many times have you promised me? That's that. No, he'll never do it. He'll never take himself from you. Do you know why he'll never do it? Do you know why you can be confident that whether you feel him today or don't feel him, even though you're seeking him, that he will never cast you off, that he will receive you, that he will not turn his face from you? Because Jesus lost that one thing. Do you realize that? On the cross, Jesus lost the one thing. Jesus wanted only one thing in his life because he was a perfect man of God. He only wanted one thing. On the cross, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he turned and said, I seek your face. What did he get? He got the back of God's hand. He is the only person who this has ever happened to, and it will never happen again. Somebody said, I seek your face, and God gave him the back of his hand. Why? So when we seek his face... We'll never get the back of his hand. Even though we fall down, even though we fail, he will always be there for us. Because he turned his back on his son and punished him for our sins, we will never see God turn his back on us. That's the reason why you can say, though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Because I know I have the one thing. I'll have the one thing. I'm getting the one thing that'll never be taken away from me. The face and love in the presence of God in the eternal life through Jesus. Because Jesus lost it, you got it, says Keller. So let me assure you, because of the mercy of our God, we will get through this coronavirus storm. I don't know when and I don't know how. And I do know that there will be people that fall along the way. But the people of God overall will not be sunk in this storm. Even those who fall will be utterly preserved for eternity because of what happened on the cross and what happened in the tomb on Easter Sunday, the first Easter Sunday. Now, when we do get through this storm, let me encourage you to turn to the anchor of your soul and hold fast to him before the next storm comes. There will be another storm, and another after that, and another after that, and another after that. Maybe they won't all be this bad. Maybe they'll be worse. I don't know. But those who overcome those storms best that are coming, and the one we're in right now, will be those who already have the ship of their lives secured by the anchor of Jesus. Hebrews 6 says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner. In other words, the hope that is an anchor for our soul is that Jesus has gone into the very presence of God on our behalf and pleaded for us by name 
that we be accepted into eternal life, not because we've earned it or been good, but because he earned it by his perfect life and his perfect sacrifice. That is a hope that is an anchor for our soul. Let me close with a tiny illustration by Charles Spurgeon. He says, see, there are two vessels over there and a storm is coming on. I see a great hurrying and scurrying on the deck of one of the ships. What are they doing? They have a great anchor and they are seeking to throw it out. The storm is coming and they want to get a good hold in the ground for fear lest they should be driven onto the shore. But on the deck of the other ship, says Spurgeon, I see no bustle at all. There is the watch pacing up and down as leisurely as possible. Why are they not in a panic? Ahoy there, ahoy! What makes you so calm and assured? Have you got your anchor? See you, your comrades in the other vessel. See how busy they are. Oh, says the watch. We've already had our anchor out a long while ago before the storm came in, and therefore we have no need to trouble now and hurry to throw it out. Now, says Spurgeon, you who are full of doubts and fears and troubles, you know the way to be safe is to throw out the anchor of faith. But it would be better still if you had had the anchor of faith out already so that you could trust in God and not be afraid at all. So friends, be ready for the next storm. It'll come. How soon? I've no idea. Be ready in this storm. Turn to Jesus. Grip fast the anchor of hope that is in him and know that it is the strength of his grip that holds us, not our own feeble hands. Let's read some more of the word of God. Leviticus chapter 21, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to Aaron's sons, the priests, and tell them, A priest is not to make himself ceremonially ceremonially unclean for a dead person among his relatives, except for his immediate family, his mother, father, son, daughter, or brother. He may make himself unclean for his unmarried virgin sister in his immediate family, He is not to make himself unclean for those related to him by marriage and so defile himself. Priests may not make bald spots on their heads, shave the edge of their beards, or make gashes on their bodies. They are to be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. For they present the food offerings to the Lord, the food of their God, and they must be holy. They are not to marry a woman defiled by prostitution. They are not to marry a one divorced by her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You are to consider him holy since he presents the food of your God. He will be holy to you because I, the Lord who sets you apart, am holy. If a priest's daughter defiles herself by promiscuity, she defiles her father. She must be burned to death. The priest who is the highest among his brothers, who has had the anointing oil poured on his head and has been ordained to wear the clothes, must not dishevel his hair or tear his clothes. He must not go near any dead person or make himself unclean even for his father or mother. He must not leave the sanctuary or he will desecrate the sanctuary of his God for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. He is to marry a woman who is a virgin. He is not to marry a widow, a divorced woman, or one defiled by prostitution. He is to marry a virgin from his own people so that he does not corrupt his bloodline among his people. For I am the Lord who sets him apart. The Lord spoke to Moses, Tell Aaron, none of your descendants throughout your generations who has a physical defect is to come near to present the food of his God. No man who has any defect is to come near. No man who is blind, lame, facially disfigured, or deformed. No man who has a broken foot or hand, or who is a hunchback or a dwarf, or who has an eye defect, a festering rash, scabs, or a crushed testicle. No descendant of the priest of Aaron who has a defect is to come near to the present 
to present the food offerings to the Lord. He has a defect and is not come near to come near to present the food of his God. He may eat the food of his God from what is especially holy as well as from what is holy, but because he has a defect, he must not go near the curtain or approach the altar. He is not to desecrate my holy places, for I am the Lord who sets them apart. Moses said this to Aaron and his sons and to all the Israelites. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 1 Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Better to approach in obedience than to offer the sacrifices fools do, for they ignorantly do wrong. Do not be hasty to speak and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Just as dreams accompany much labor, so also a fool's voice comes with many words. When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than that you vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you and do not stay in the presence of the messenger Do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? For many dreams bring futility, so do many words, therefore fear God. If you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be astonished at the situation, because one official protects another official, and higher officials protect them. The profit from the land is taken by all, and the king is served by the field. The one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This, too, is futile. When good things increase, the one who consumes them multiply. What, then, is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. There is a sickening tragedy I have seen under the sun, wealth kept by its owner to his harm. That wealth was lost in a bad venture, so when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. As he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again naked as he came. He will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. This, too, is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so will he go. What does the one gain who struggles for the wind? What is more, he eats in darkness all his days with much frustration, sickness, and anger. Here is what I have seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him, because that is his reward. Furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has allowed him to enjoy them, take his reward, and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God, for he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. Chapter 6 Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, rather they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, 
into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to be good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, Thus storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. And my dear friends, grace be with you as well. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Godspeed.